everyone. Welcome to this week's chapter by chapter recap. We are going to be taking a look at some of the gospels today. So our assigned reading, our assigned Bible reading through Bible Discovery and Bible Discovery TV was Mark 5 to Luke chapter 2. So if you don't know, my name is Corey and I'm here with my husband, Matlock. Hi, Matlock. Hey. And we are looking at the Gospels. Yeah. Specifically, a large chunk of one Gospel today and a little introduction into the next. Uh, But yeah, I'm excited to finish off Mark. How about you? I'm excited to get into Luke, too. Yes, Luke is very interesting. Mark is nice and concise. And each of the the Gospels seem to have their own focus and their own... Their own... uh, Theological points. Thank you. Going on. Themes. Yes. Themes going on. Okay. So Mark 5. Let's just jump. Let's just dive right in. In Mark 5, Jesus meets a demon-possessed man who's living in the tomb. So elsewhere uh, in the Gospels and just in Christian culture, you may hear this talked about, the the demon-possessed men, uh, the area of the Gadarenes, that, that whole, this is the same Same story. So Jesus meets a demon-possessed man living in the tombs. He casts the demons out of the man, but he allows them to enter a herd of pigs at their request. Uh, The demons then drown the pigs, and Jesus is asked to leave the area by the area's residents who are scared of him and his power. Okay, so what's interesting about this, though, is Mark adds the detail that this this healed man actually becomes a missionary for Christ in the Decapolis, which is which was a, a, a group of 10 Greek cities. So this healed man then becomes this missionary for Christ, which is really, really interesting. Very cool. Jesus then heals a woman who's had an issue of bleeding for 12 years, and he raises uh, Jairus's daughter from the dead. Jairus was a synagogue leader. So that's all in Mark chapter 5. Now, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes to Nazareth, so his hometown where he was raised as a child, and he teaches in the synagogue there. But the people were told that the people didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah because they knew him and his family. He, he was just known to them. They, they saw him grow up. Uh, so the Bible tells us here in Mark 6 that he only is able to heal a few people there. And uh, after this event in Nazareth, Jesus sends out the 12, so meaning his 12 closest disciples, in teams of two to go and spread the, the message about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, being there now, being upon them, and to heal people. Uh, there's a record also of John the Baptist's execution by a man named Herod Antipas, which is also known. This event is also historically known from the first century Jewish Roman historian Josephus also talks about John the Baptist being um, held and executed. Okay, so still in Mark chapter 6, the apostles, so they get sent out, but then there's a record of them coming back and meeting up with Jesus and debriefing Jesus and each other about everything that's been going on. And then the miracle of feeding the 5,000 occurs. Jesus sends all the disciples to go ahead to the city of Bethsaida. He's going to meet up with them later. Uh, But the wind on the lake was so bad, the disciples had to go to Bethsaida via boat on, on the Sea of Galilee, on this lake. And the progress was really, really slow because of the wind. And Jesus ends up walking on water across the lake and he catches up to the boat and all of them were completely amazed. So Mark makes a note that uh, their hearts were hard, which was revealed by them not understanding all the deads of Jesus. So, um, and remember it's believed, you know, through 
Christian tradition that Mark is getting his notes here from Peter. So it's interesting that Peter, as one of the 12, could be making that that observation. Yeah. Okay, Mark chapter 7. So Jesus, this is really interesting. Jesus uses a challenge of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as a teachable moment. He does this a lot. He's given a challenge, and then he turns it into this really amazing moment this this teaching so the this challenge specifically was in the form of a question on why jesus and his disciples didn't follow the jewish religious custom of washing their hands before a meal now this wasn't why so today you know i'm a mom i have kids i ask my kids to wash their hands because their hands are dirty. Like I I don't, I don't want them ingesting and eating the dirt on their hands because I know about germs. I know they can get sick. That is not what this religious custom was about. This was about being ceremonially clean. So it looks like the Pharisees were trying to extend the law from just the priests having to bathe and, and be clean ceremonially before they did their work to now include all people before they ate to be ceremonially clean uh, before God. Uh, but Jesus takes this opportunity to really challenge the Pharisees on how they're following man's traditions based on the law rather than following the law itself. And he gives us this teaching that it's not actually what goes into your physical body that spiritually matters. It doesn't matter if you're eating and your hands are dirty. That doesn't make you spiritually unclean. This is just a sign. It's a symbol. It doesn't practically mean anything. It's actually what comes out of your heart, what comes out of your mouth that defiles you, what you say, what you teach, how you how you treat people. Uh, that actually reveals the condition of your heart. It's a really interesting teaching by Christ and and worth really sitting and meditating on. Okay, Mark chapter 8. So this is another miracle of provision of of Christ multiplying and providing food for people. This time about 4,000 people who had followed him out into the wilderness away from a city in order to learn from him. And they had been there for three days. So remember Jesus uh, what the God, Matthew and Mark have both said at this point that Jesus had trouble entering cities because people would swarm him because he was a known healer. So they would swarm him. And then, so he would often go out into the wilderness in order to teach people. <clears throat> okay. So then still in Mark eight, Jesus travels via boat again to Delmontia, where the Pharisees ask for a sign at this city. Uh, which, you know, to me, this seems like a bit much considering what Jesus has already done. But maybe these specific Pharisees had never encountered Christ before. They had only heard of him. We're told that Jesus sighs deeply and says no, essentially. He's basically like, no. <laughs> when you're reading it, that's the, that's kind of what you get. And Jesus goes back in the boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He On his way to the other side of the sea in the boat, he tells his disciples to be aware to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of the yeast of Herod. And the disciples do not understand this. And of course, he's talking about the teachings of these two groups. <clears throat> okay, so still in Mark chapter 8, Jesus then heals a blind man at Bethsaida, but he heals him in two parts. There's not very many miracle, uh, you know, there's a few uh miracles of Christ that don't happen instantaneously. And this is one of them. This happens in two parts. So first, the man is able to see large shadows. And then after Jesus prays for him again, 
he's fully healed. Um, Now, a lot of people, upon reflecting on this account, they think that it's specifically there to parallel the process that Jesus' disciples were going through because they weren't totally spiritually blind at this point, but they also weren't all the way there as revealed by them not understanding what Jesus was talking about when he he said the yeast of the Pharisees and and Herod, even though he had already given them parables about yeast and, and all that. So that's that's definitely potentially why Mark chose to include that there to to show this parallelism between the disciples are being healed just as people are being physically healed. The disciples are being spiritually healed. Well, I think too, Christ even alludes to this when he says it's the wicked generation. Yeah, he's just including everyone as a whole. He's not just saying you guys and us, right? It's like we're different from you. It's like everyone as a whole is just hardened. Yeah. So he's just so he's just right. And there has to be spiritual transformation that happens, spiritual healing that happens right. in order to restore. Uh, a feeling heart, a soft, a softness a towards flesh, God. Right. Yep. Okay. So then in the end of Mark chapter eight, here's where Mark records Peter's confession of Christ as the Messiah, which then of course is followed by Peter rebuking Christ when, when Jesus predicts his own death. Right. Um, so, the apostles, again, the apostles, they know who Christ is. They can see a little bit, but they are they don't understand his role yet. They don't understand that he is also the suffering servant of Isaiah. So their, their healing, their spiritual healing isn't complete yet, as right. we see here. Okay, Mark chapter 9 records the transfiguration of, uh, so, of Jesus. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up an unnamed mountain, and he's transformed before them. So his, it, we're told in the scripture, his clothes became impossibly dazzling white. And then Moses and Elijah also appeared, and they were speaking with him. Uh, and the, what's really interesting about the transfiguration is that this may be showing that this is essentially the new Sinai. This is the the beginning of the new covenant where on Mount Sinai, God gave to Moses the law, you know, his word. And now here again, we've got these witnesses. We've got Moses and Elijah from different time periods, from different covenantal time periods, from the time period of the kings and from the time period of the law. And it's no coincidence that Jesus is about to enact the new covenant. Right. So just some thoughts there. So uh, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John not to tell anyone about this vision until he had risen from the dead, which they were confused over because they're like, dead, what do you mean dead? What do you mean risen from the dead? What do you mean? (laughs) What? Yeah. Okay. So they return to the other disciples um, and they find the disciples arguing with teachers of the law uh, and, and there's a big crowd assembling around them, arguing with them. And the argumentation is over a demon-possessed boy who the disciples have been unable to heal. They've been unable to deliver him. And Jesus delivers the boy and tells the disciple that that type of demon comes uh, co- does come out, but only by prayer. Other translations have prayer and fasting as well. So, But essentially, communication with God real deep communication with God. Jesus also tells the disciples that the greatest leader in the kingdom of God has to become a servant to everyone. To be first is to be last. Uh, So Jesus also gives them a teaching on the dangers of teaching other people or showing other people by your life how to sin. And it's very 
this teaching by Jesus is very, it's rough, it's bold. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. Right. So Jesus is emphasizing, this is very serious. Right. Teaching, you have to be careful what you teach, not only with your words, but with your life. Yeah, that's right. It is It is a huge responsibility. He's also not literally advocating that you should cut off your hands. Yeah, no, he's and using emphasis. That's he's right. using, you know, hyperbole for emphasis. That's exactly right. Yeah, because he's already taught that the physical world isn't what makes things sinful necessarily. It's not right. what goes into your body. It's not the dirt on your hands That's that makes right. you impure. Right. But it's what comes from your heart that makes you impure. Yeah, yeah. So he's already made those distinctions. So you definitely do have to keep the teachings of Christ in context with the other teachings That's of Christ. That's right. For sure. Mark chapter 10. So Jesus gives a teaching in Mark 10 against divorce and for marriage, but marriage as God intended it to be. Then he speaks with the so-called rich young ruler. We we like to call him the rich young ruler today. Uh, but so this this man uh, is very religious. He follows the the Jewish law very passionately, and he's wealthy. And when Jesus tells him to sell all that he has and give it to the poor, he leaves, and he leaves sadly. So this transition, this transitions into Jesus then giving a teaching to the people who are there about how hard it is for the rich, uh, and then indeed for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the disciples hear him out uh, and then they remind Jesus, I I really like this, they remind Jesus that, you know, well, they have left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus says to them, truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children's and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I love how we also, we, we like to de-emphasize the along with persecutions here. <laughs> but Jesus is essentially saying that, yes, you've left, but you've also gained. You now are part of the family of God. You have a family of believers around you, and you have communion and fellowship with God. Um, and there will be trouble still. Doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. There will be persecution. But in the age to come, you will receive eternal life. So this is not all that there is. We also see in Mark 10, Jesus predicting his death and resurrection for the third time recorded in Mark. And then we've, we got, we have James and John vying for position in Christ's kingdom. Right. So they're still confused over what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven looks like. And they ask, you know, Jesus, uh, have one of us sit at your right hand and one at your left hand. So these would be the positions of greatest power. And Jesus reminds them that uh, leadership in the kingdom of God is not like leadership in the world. It's servanthood. Right. And what's what's interesting, there's a couple things interesting. And it also harkens back to Mark 8, where he says, uh, get behind me, Satan. Right? Paul, mm-hmm. Peter's like, no, 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 you can't. Get behind me, Satan. For you're, you're not on uh, the side of God, but on, on of men. Mm-hmm. You're looking at the things of men on the side of God. And you have this relationship that's kind of here where they're just kind of looking at, oh, the kingdom of men, the kingdom of men. Like they're yeah. kind of looking at this yeah. from standpoint. What's even interesting too here is that when – because it's all still connected there because that was the first time God told uh, was foretelling about his death. This is now the third time. Yeah. And they still – it still hasn't quite sunk in. 
understandably so. From a human standpoint. Still figuring it out. Still trying to figure it out. What's really interesting, too, is that get behind me, Satan, that concept. He's talking about Satan thinking about men. You think Mm -hmm. about the kingdom of man, and that's Satan's work. Mm -hmm. So you, you really think about that and how that would actually be a temptation of his. Like one of the temptations that Satan gave him was to rule the kingdoms of the world, not to die. Like yep. this, right? So this concept of like, oh, this earthly man kingdom, right? To rule it for you, you're going to rule it now, right? That goes, that is a temptation. Yeah. That, that, that is Satan's working for, for the kingdom of man. So it's really interesting parallels that are being drawn here that, um, that are just kind of woven throughout the text that you, that, that are implied, but that like, there's, uh, the apostles are really looking at, the disciples at the time, really looking at uh, this human-like kingdom, not necessarily thinking about, they're not necessarily like meditating or concerned with the spiritual world at all at this mm-hmm. point, which really shows you how hardened they are. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Mark chapter 11. So this records Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, when people greet Jesus by uh, recognizing him as the Messiah, as the son of David specifically. Uh, Then Jesus goes into the temple complex and he drives out the money changers and those that were buying and selling in the temple. Uh, And he, you know, he's flipping tables, he's flipping benches and, you know, these things were not supposed to be done in the temple and God, and Jesus was not having it. So the next day, Jesus returns to the temple complex and the chief priests, the teachers, and the elders confront him and ask him by whose authority he had cleared the temple. And again, he doesn't just flip the tables. He flips the questions on these guys. And he says, you know, paraphrase version here, I'll tell you if you tell me if John's baptism came from heaven or from men. And uh, the chief priests, teachers, and elders refused to answer because they they had rejected John, but the people had accepted John the Baptist as from God. So they didn't want to lose the people's support over John the Baptist because he was already dead and gone, right? So they just, they just didn't know how to handle this question. So Jesus then refuses to answer them. If you're not going to answer me, why should I answer you? <clears throat> In Mark chapter 12, uh, Jesus gives the parable of the tenants. So the moral of this parable, it's a really interesting one, but basically is that the people had rejected the prophets of God and now they were actually going to kill the son of God and would be replaced. They would be replaced as the people of God. So this parable was very clearly against the religious leaders. The religious leaders understand that it's against them and so they leave. Uh, the, some of the religious leaders then try to trap Jesus over, um, imperial taxes. So should we pay taxes to Caesar? This was a hot social issue at the time. Uh, Israel did not want to be under the authority of the Roman empire. Some people were okay with it. Um, we see in history, but a lot of people were not okay with it. So getting Jesus to make a political statement would have been would have been a good thing to polarize the crowds or so thought the religious leader. But again, Jesus flips it and turns it into a lesson. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's, which of course is your life. It's people because we're made in the image of God. Okay, Jesus is then questioned on the resurrection by the Sadducees. Jesus affirms that that there is a resurrection from the dead and that marriage is not a thing in the resurrection. So that in in the context of the ancient world, this marriage was less about romance. Today, it's about romance. 
uh, it was less about romance. It was less about love. And it was more about legal status and inheritance and land issues. So by Jesus saying marriage is not a thing in the resurrection, he's saying legal status, land issues, inheritance issues. These are not a thing in the resurrection. Still in Mark 12, uh, Jesus is questioned about what the greatest law is in the Old Testament. And uh, Jesus gives the golden rule, which impresses the teacher of the law that asked him that question. Jesus then stumps them. He turns he turns the questioning around on them, uh, which again, we, we read this in Matthew. But Jesus goes, if David is the Messiah, if King David is the Messiah's father, the Messiah's ancestor, then why would he call the Messiah Lord in the Psalms? So the Messiah must be something more. We're also told in Mark about the widow's might. So two very small copper coins that uh, a a poor widow gave in the temple and how her gift was greater than uh, someone who gave lots of money out of their wealth. Okay, Mark chapter 13. This is Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple uh, in AD 70 and also the second coming of the Son of Man, which was him, Christ. Mark chapter 14. What? The shortest recap of chapter the 13. The shortest recap of chapter 14 <laughs> ever. Uh, chapter 13 ever in the history of recaps. Yeah. But that's essentially what happened. Yeah. Okay, Mark chapter 14. Jesus is anointed by a woman in Bethany uh, in the home of Simon the leper. So this seems to be a linchpin event for Judas, Judas of Iscariot, because he then goes to the chief priest to betray Jesus. This is the final straw for Judas. Uh, he He begins to actively look for a chance to get Jesus arrested by the chief priests. So Jesus then secretly and clandestinely arranges for a Passover meal for him and his disciples in an unknown spot. And we talked about this when we were in Matthew. Um, This could have been to avoid getting prematurely arrested because he doesn't want, his disciples don't know that Judas is betraying him. So if he tells his disciples and they tell Judas where to meet him, Judas is just going to get the chief priest to go to that house and arrest Jesus during Passover. Jesus wants to have the Passover meal because he's going to be instituting the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. So then they have the Passover meal and they go to the Mount of Olives. They go specifically to the area of Gethsemane and Jesus uh, predicts there that Peter is going to deny him, is going to betray him. Jesus goes off to pray because he's having a really hard time, the scripture tells us, facing what comes next for him. He brings Peter, James, and John to pray for him, but they keep falling asleep. Uh, We see Jesus being arrested by a crowd led by Judas here in chapter 14. And then we see Jesus facing the high priest and facing the Sanhedrin, which was a ruling body, a religious body of elders. Um, So after all is said and done, uh, during this trial, Jesus does admit to being the Messiah, and then they begin to beat him. Uh, and we see at the end of chapter 14, Peter does, in fact, deny knowing Christ three times. Mark chapter 15, we have the record of Jesus's trial before Pontius Pilate, which, needless to say, does not go well for Jesus. He answers Pilate, but he doesn't respond to any of the accusations against him that the priests are lobbing towards him. 
So Pilate gives the people what they want, essentially a sentence of crucifixion, but first with a flogging, a a pretty nasty beating. Uh, Jesus is too weak to carry the cross himself to the place of execution. So uh, probably because he's been up all night and beaten, he's probably lost a lot of blood and energy. So the Roman soldiers force a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus's cross for him. Interestingly, in Mark, there is a notation here, and Simon of Cyrene's sons are named Alexander and Rufus, which could mean uh, that when Mark, the gospel, was being written, that these men were known to Mark's audience, probably because they became believers in Christ because of this interaction that their father had with him, uh, and then also with the resurrection. Is that a beautiful symbol, too? That's just like we come in, right? Christ can't carry. So we come in, we we carry the cross that Christ wants us to carry your own mm-hmm. cross and follow me. Yeah. That parallel between um, our our suffering with Christ is like something that's kind of lost on mm-hmm. our generation. And just in general, it's like something that we just don't often teach and like meditate We're on. We're really spoiled. Yeah. And we, ca- <laughs> we carry through. And I mean, by spoiled, I mean privileged in our culture. Right. We have, we don't have to grow our own food. We have grocery stores. Right. You know, by and large, most of us aren't farmers. We're not growing our own food. We right. have, it, life is easy for us. And so we kind of expect that to be the same when it comes to our spiritual reality as well. That's right. But when we read the scriptures, we realize that it's not that way. Right. Yeah, I know. And just that, to, to know that like Christ died and is dying on a cross and we are called to take up our own cross, right? Mm-hmm. To, to, to suffer and to be like Christ in humiliation. To struggle. To struggle. This is part of the call. We can talk about this all day, but it's uh, it's really symbolized it's such a there. good topic, though. I know. I know. It's symbolized. <laughs> it's really symbolized right there, mm-hmm. like in, in a real way. It's, mm-hmm. uh, and and what, what comfort, though, when we do begin, I think, I think in the West specifically, when then our lives do start to fall apart when we do start to find really hard things. I think that's why we find ourselves going, well, why God? Right. Why, how could you allow this to happen to me? Because we are so privileged in so many, so many areas, but in areas that we can't control a lot of times, really difficult things happen to us. And then we start going, well, what, what is going on? But we realize all along that struggle is supposed to be part of the human experience now. And, and what comfort, though, that we see that struggle in the scripture. Yeah. Not only spiritual, but physical as well. Yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. It's, it's really interesting. Because even just talking to your point before you keep going, that's the fact that, like, our you were talking about, like, here was the cause of a struggle. We had to question God's goodness or whatever it yep. is in the suffering. Yet in other nations that don't have privilege, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Through suffering, do they see the light of God? And it's like a mm-hmm. very... It's, it's very opposite to how we are. So it really does tell you something about, are, are we a bunch of young, rich rulers? Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, are, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's, that's Self-righteous really... Self-righteous in our, we've done everything that we need to do. Oh, yeah. I've said the prayer. That's right. I go to church. Yeah, but are you giving all your money to the My poor? My Bible's pink and right. very well used. <laughs> it Just, is. But yeah, it's, some, it's something to really reflect on, to think about what does it mean to carry the, to carry your cross yeah. and follow me? Yeah. And that's, and that's what this is you know, harmonizing. Yep. Okay. So then still in Mark chapter 15, we get 
the record of the crucifixion. So Jesus is crucified between two criminals at a place called Golgotha, and he continues to be mocked as he's dying. Uh, So we're told that he's hung on the cross at 9 a.m. At noon, darkness came over the land for three hours, and then Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, which would have been recognized by the people of the Jewish people of that day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's definitely worth going to Psalm 22 and see why Jesus would choose to quote from that. Um, Then we're told that Jesus lets out a loud cry and dies. Uh, You know, later in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see that Luke says that Jesus cried, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then in John, John says that Jesus cried, it is finished. So they're just recording different, they can be recording different elements of what Jesus cried out at his last. So we're told that uh, they put Jesus's body in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph were there. So they witnessed where the disciples put the body. So then the women, uh, two Marys and Salome or Salome, uh, go to the tomb and meet angels uh, who tell them that Jesus has risen. So this is three days later, a few days later in Mark chapter 15. And then there's a list of meetings that Jesus, the risen Jesus had. And those meetings start with Mary Magdalene, and then they grow ever outwards into, you know, individuals and then groups and things like that. Mm -hmm. So Mark ends with a note on how the disciples preached everywhere and confirmed that preaching of the gospel with signs. All right, so now we're just going to look at Luke chapter 1 and 2. So we're just going to scratch the surface of the gospel of Luke. Now, Luke is really um, unique in how it opens up. So I want... uh, It's worth going and reading the first three verses of Luke because it's just... it's, It's unique in how it opens up because it opens up with a statement of intent. This is why... I'm writing this book. So its stated purpose is to provide evidence for the truth of Christ. So to evangelize, to provide evidence for the truth of Christ and to strengthen faith in Christ. So in chapter one, we have the story of John the Baptist's parents specifically. So how John the Baptist was born, which we haven't gotten before in Matthew or Mark and how God actually foretold his birth to John's elderly priestly father, Zechariah, and then how the angel Gabriel foretold the birth of Christ to Mary. Uh, So Mary then visits Elizabeth because they're cousins while they're both pregnant. uh, And we learn that John the Baptist and Jesus then are, are also cousins. They're related. So then in Luke chapter one, still we have a a record of Mary's song of praise that she composed to God. We've got uh, the birth of John the Baptist and Zechariah, his father's song of praise that he composed to God. Uh, And there's a note that John grew and became strong and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel, uh, which is really interesting in and of itself. Like, is he, is he, shadowing the wilderness wandering period of Israel. What is this? This is so interesting. Uh, We know that Elijah also spent lots of time in the wilderness, so it makes sense. Luke chapter two is all focused on the birth of Jesus, but gives us way more details than the other gospels have so far. So we're told that Jesus was born in the days of Caesar Augustus, who is the proper first emperor of the Roman empire, uh, and how there was a census of the Roman of 
of the Roman world that brought Joseph and Mary to Joseph's ancestral home, so to where his family was from, which was Bethlehem, because he was in the line of David. So we see angels appearing to shepherds who then come and find Jesus, uh, baby Jesus. And then the shepherds begin spreading the word that the Messiah has been born. So Jesus is taken to the temple to be purified. So this would have been 40 days after he was born. So just over a month after he was born. And Mary and Joseph offer a sacrifice for Jesus. But it's the sacrifice of a poor, of the poor. It's two, two birds uh, rather than uh, uh, an animal of the flock. Okay, so while they're at the temple offering these sacrifices for Jesus, a man named Simeon who had been waiting to meet the Messiah, he had been waiting. God told him that he was going to meet him. He sees the baby Jesus. He recognizes him as the Messiah and he praises God. And also we're told that a prophet named Anna, uh, who lived in the temple complex as a woman dedicated to God after the death of her husband uh, many years before, she also uh, saw the infant Jesus and praised God and began to tell people about Jesus. And she was quite elderly, especially for that time period. She was 84, according to Luke here. And then finally, we have the only known kind of adolescent story of Christ in the Gospels. Uh, 12-year-old Jesus at Passover time stays in the temple courts, unbeknownst to his parents who just go home. And he, Jesus speaks with the teachers in the temple complex, the teachers of the law, whom he amazes. His knowledge amazes them. And when his parents find him three days later, he's obedient to them and he goes home with them to Nazareth. Right. So Luke gives us lots of really interesting details about the early life of Christ and John the Baptist that we otherwise do not know of from any of yeah, the other gospels. Yeah, he's a historian. Like he, yes. He does his homework, you can tell. Yes, yeah, and, yeah. and this is why, too, a lot of people believe that, you know, this this information would have had to have come from Mary. Right. With her visiting Elizabeth and things like that. Right, so, for sure. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, and it ends off with that genealogy, too, again, of Jesus. Yep. Uh, what's really interesting, too, is when you think about it, it's always the genealogy of Joseph. But technically speaking, Jesus wasn't Joseph's biological, biological child. He was an adopted child. child. So he was, he was like legally, and legally he was adopted. So that right. that's what but, meant it. But what's yeah. interesting about that is that that is this concept of the adoption of sonship that we yes. have typed in, right? So that's the concept is that we like- We have been given a heritage, yes. Exactly. We've been given it. We have adoption of sonship. It's a very similar parallel that is, that's kind of happening. And so that's just a beautiful, uh, you know, uh, symbol that's just even in the gene- genealogies themselves. But It totally is. Yeah. That's that for me. All right, guys, that wraps it up for this week. I hope that you have a really good week reading through the rest of Luke and beginning John. Until next time, happy studying. See you next week. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.